Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This week, I want to re-record one of my earlier episodes, that being the Bhopal disaster. This industrial disaster is considered the world's worst industrial accident. When I initially recorded this episode, my research skills in script writing were not as strong, and as a result, I'm not happy with the quality of the episode. So this week, we're going to dive into the preceding events leading up to the disaster to include the gross negligence that occurred on a daily basis at this facility. What's shocking to me is that this plant produced a highly toxic product that is known to cause long-term health effects and could lead to death if exposure occurred long enough in a highly populated area. However, before we jump into the episode, I have some housekeeping notes to cover. I, along with every other content creator, have to do the shameless plug. Since we're still early on in the season, I think it's time that I bring up Patreon. I revamped the tier benefits. The community responder level, or the $5 level, is the entry level tier. This tier offers access to the Patreon community, a monthly AMA hosted on the show's Reddit page, and a shout out each episode. The next is the section chief, or $10 tier. This tier offers all perks from the previous tier, a 10% discount on merch, and four Destination Disaster stickers following your first month's billing cycle. Finally, the Emergency Management Director, or $20 tier, is the highest level of support currently and offers all benefits from previous tiers, plus a 20% discount on merchandise and a curated merchandise bundle worth $50. If you choose to support, please know that there is no obligation and you can cancel at any time. This show will always be free to listen to, and the Patreon support is merely to help the show continue to grow. And finally, our one piece of news for this episode is that a mysterious illness is being reported in northern China, which looks to be mostly affecting children. According to the World Health Organization, an uptick in walking pneumonia is being reported. On November 23rd, the World Health Organization held a teleconference with Chinese health authorities from the Chinese Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the Beijing Children's Hospital, facilitated by the National Health Commission and the National Administration of Disease Control and Prevention, in which the requested data was provided indicating an increase in outpatient consultations and hospital admissions of children due to mycoplasma pneumoniae pneumonia since May and RSV, adenovirus, and influenza virus since October. Some of these increases are earlier in the season than historically experienced, but not unexpected given the lifting of COVID-19 restrictions, as similarly experienced in other countries. No changes in the disease presentation were reported by the Chinese health authorities. Chinese authorities advised that there has been no detection of any unusual or novel pathogens or unusual clinical presentations, including in Beijing and Liaoning, but only the aforementioned general increase in respiratory illnesses due to multiple known pathogens. They further stated that the rise in respiratory illnesses has not resulted in patient loads exceeding hospital capacities. In the current outbreak of respiratory illness, the reported symptoms are common to several respiratory diseases and, as of now, at the present time, Chinese surveillance and hospital systems report that the clinical manifestations are caused by known pathogens and circulations. Mycoplasma pneumoniae is a common respiratory pathogen and a common cause of pediatric pneumonia and is readily treated with antibiotics. The bottom line is, if you are sick, please avoid travel if at all possible. 
If you become ill while traveling, please wear an N95 mask to protect yourself and others around you. At this present time, I don't believe there is a huge risk or a need to worry as both the World Health Organization and Chinese health authorities are readily watching this situation evolve. With that out of the way, let's go ahead and jump into the episode for the week. disaster, once again, is referred to as the worst industrial accident in recorded history, due in part to the sheer amount of injuries and long-term health effects that were caused by the explosion and release of toxic material into the environment. The plant itself was operated by Union Carbide India Limited, or UCIL for short, and was owned by the Union Carbide Company in the United States. It was located in Bhopal, Madhya Pradesh, India, and at the time of the accident, the population of the city was just shy of 800,000, meaning that over half of the population was exposed to the harmful chemicals that were released following the explosion. The owner of the factory, USIL, was majority owned by the Union Carbide Corporation of the United States, with Indian government-controlled banks and the Indian public holding a 49.1% stake. The facility was known to produce a wide variety of products such as batteries, welding equipment, but primarily produced vast amounts of pesticides and would utilize the chemical methyl isocyanate in the production and would be the main chemical protagonist for this disaster. Union Carbide India Limited began a similar operation on the same site in the late 1960s as a formulation plant where the chemical carbaryl was imported from UCC's facility in West Virginia. At this point, there was no manufacturing of chemicals and only mixing was being completed to produce pesticides, which would then be sold to distributors throughout India. That arrangement benefited USIL because it was able to sell the formulated insecticide to a growing agricultural market in India without having to make the large capital investment necessary to build a major chemical plant. However, from the time USIL first began to import carbaryl from UCC's plant and institute West Virginia, the government of India pressured USIL to back integrate that is, to build a chemical plant capable of manufacturing carbaryl from indigenous raw material in order to save the foreign exchange paid for those imports. The mechanism to enforce back integration was the government of India's control over import licenses. 
to import carbaryl into India, the government of India required USIL to obtain annually a license that included a condition that USIL develop and implement plans to build a fully back integrated chemical plant in India, which included the manufacture of methyl isocyanate. USIL's choice, either back integrate or abandon the sizable market it had developed for insecticides in India. As the operation and market continued to grow, pressure from the Indian government continued to mount to back integrate to cut import costs and essentially centralize the operation. Design and construction on the plant began in 1972 with the submission of process design packages from the Union Carbide Corporation. UCC did not have any direct control on the final construction due to an arm's length contract between USIL and the final approving body, the Government of India. And the years after USIL's receipt of UCC's process designs, USIL made a vast number of choices, trade-offs, and changes during the detailed design, engineering, and construction of the plant. And UCC's process designs were changed in innumerable ways to suit USIL's operating philosophy and local conditions. UCC had no further design role. Much of the technology for the Bhopal plant was developed by USIL itself, the Napthal process, and the Seven process, or acquired from Stauffer Chemical Corporation, the carbon monoxide process. Furthermore, USIL decided not to use UCC's 7 process and developed its own. Construction cannot be completed by process design packages, as they are merely what the term derives. These submissions were a starting point for the engineers building the plant to ensure proper pressures, temperatures, and storage points were planned and designed properly. In 1976, complaints began to arise from local trade unions of pollution within the plant. It seemingly went unanswered, as in 1981, a death was reported at the facility following a phosgene leak. In 1981, a worker was accidentally splashed with phosgene as he was carrying out a maintenance job of the plant's pipes. In a panic, he removed his gas mask and inhaled a large amount of toxic phosgene gas, leading to his death 72 hours later. Following these events, journalist Raj Kumar Keswani began investigating and published his findings in Bhopal's local paper, Rapat, in which he urged, Wake up, people of Bhopal. You are on the edge of a volcano. Keswani would continue to investigate the plant, becoming the primary voice reporting on instances of leaks, pollution, and ultimately the tragedy that would occur. Keswani first wrote about the inadequate safety standards on September 26, 1982, with a title, Save Please, Save This City, in the small weekly paper Rapat. He repeated the warning in two following articles on October 1st, Bhopal sitting on the brink of a volcano, and on October 8th, If you don't understand, you all shall be wiped out that year. On October 5th, four days after the second article, 18 people at the Union Carbide plant were exposed to a mixture of chloroform, methyl isocyanate, and hydrochloric acid from a leaking valve. None were seriously harmed. These articles show that indeed, there were serious safety lapses and negligence that exposed both workers and the surrounding community to innumerable threats during the time this plant was in operation. Keswani tried his damnedest to alert the community and world to sheer negligence occurring at Bhopal, only to seemingly fall on deaf ears. In the article, Bhopal, on the brink of a disaster, Keswani reported on a series of incidents and asserted that the leak on October 5, 1982 had affected thousands of residents of neighboring slum districts who fled in fear and only returned after eight hours. He also asserted in the article that in 1975, M. N. Book, an Indian bureaucrat, had asked Union Carbide to move the plant away from its present site because of the rapid growth of residential neighborhoods around it. Union Carbide were lucky because Book was transferred from his post. Time and time again, we read about these preceding events and where they could have been prevented 
and wonder why the plant operators didn't halt production for even a day to identify the leaking pollution, to listen to the local community advocates such as Keswani, and in turn, use some of those funds generated to implement critical safeguards and mitigate environmental pollution. In every case, the almighty dollar drives decisions, not the tens of thousands who live within proximity to highly toxic chemicals, some that aren't even being stored properly. Bhopal was truly the prime example of a ticking time bomb. Management didn't care. They became complacent because I'm sure the monotonous process of chemical production is not a glamorous job and is one that relies on the monitoring of sensors over prolonged periods of time. I get it. It's boring. But what isn't is the detrimental effects this would have on not only the community, but the world. We're going to stop right here and take a mid-episode break. Hopefully there is an ad that kicks in. If not, once again, I'm sorry for the dead air for 30 seconds. On-site storage held massive amounts of methyl isocyanate, the key chemical needed to manufacture the pesticides. Underground, three 18,000-gallon tanks housed the volatile chemical, and UCIL's standard practice was to not fill the tanks above 50% or 30 tons, and the rest of the space was filled with inert nitrogen gas that could be released to clear the MIC lines to prevent moisture accumulation. However, if you listen to the first run of this episode that I've recorded, you'll know that once again, negligence and complacency led to critical safety failures. By early December 1984, the majority of the safety systems and steam boiler used to clean the lines were either faulty or outright inoperable. Sometime during the night of December 2nd, 1984, water entered the storage tank E610 after what is believed to have been attempts to clean the clogged lines. However, once the water began to interact with the methyl isocyanate, a runaway exothermic reaction began and would be the eventual cause of the explosion and release of over 40 tons of the toxic chemical into the surrounding neighborhoods. That's right, you heard it correctly, 40 tons. The pressure in tank E610, although initially nominal at 14 kilopascals or 2 psi, at 10.30 p.m. reached 70 kilopascals or 10 psi as of 11 p.m., Two different senior refinery employees assumed the reading was instrumentation malfunction. By 11.30 p.m., workers in the MIC area were feeling the effects of minor exposure to MIC gas and began to look for a leak. One was found by 11.45 p.m. and reported to the MIC supervisor on duty at the time. The decision was made to address the problem after a 12.15 a.m. tea break, and in the meantime, employees were instructed to continue looking for leaks. The problem was discussed by MIC area employees during the break. When the tea break concluded at 12.40 a.m., the reaction in tank E610 escalated to a critical state at an alarming speed within five minutes. Temperatures in the tank were off the scale, maxed out beyond 25 degrees Celsius or 77 degrees Fahrenheit, and the pressure in the tank indicated at 280 kilopascals or 40 psi. One employee witnessed a concrete slab above tank E610 crack as the emergency relief valve burst open, and the pressure in the tank continued to increase to 380 kilopascals, or 55 psi, despite atmospheric venting of toxic MIC gas having begun. 
direct atmospheric venting should have been prevented or at least partially mitigated by at least three safety devices which were malfunctioning, not in use, insufficiently sized, or otherwise rendered inoperable. A refrigeration system meant to cool tanks containing liquid MIC had been shut down in January 1982 and the Freon had been removed in June 1984. Since the MIC storage system assumed refrigeration, its high temperature alarm, set to sound at 11 degrees Celsius or 52 degrees Fahrenheit, had long since been disconnected, and tank storage temperatures ranged anywhere between 15 degrees Celsius or 59 degrees Fahrenheit and 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. The next, a flare tower to burn the MIC gas as it escaped, which had a connecting pipe removed for maintenance and was improperly sized to neutralize a leak of this size produced by tank E610. And finally, a vent gas scrubber which had been deactivated at the time and was in standby mode and similarly had insufficient caustic soda and power to safely stop a leak of the magnitude produced. About 30 tons of MIC escaped from the tank into the atmosphere in 45 to 60 minutes. This would increase to 40 tons within two hours. The gases were blown in a southeast direction over Bhopal. As the explosion and release were occurring, a plant employee followed procedure to activate the plant's alarm system. This was a two-tiered alert system with a first set of alarms that would alert only the plant and employees, and a second which would alert the local community should a leak occur. Now, after listening to this episode so far, do you think these alarm systems were in operational order? Well, surprisingly, they were. However, they were decoupled from each other. The external alarm sounded briefly at 12.50 a.m., but was quickly terminated so as to not cause panic, all the while plant employees were evacuating upwind. By about 1 a.m., Bhopal's police superintendent was alerted to the explosion and news that residents were evacuating the gas exposure. Bhopal's superintendent of police was informed via telephone by a town inspector that residents of the neighborhood of Kola, about 2 kilometers from the plant, were fleeing a gas leak approximately 1 a.m. Calls to the UCIL plant by police between 1.25 and 2.10 a.m. elicited assurances twice that everything is okay. And on the last attempt made, we don't know what has happened, sir. With the lack of timely information exchanged between UCIL and Bhopal authorities, the city's Hamadiyya Hospital was first told that the gas leak was suspected to be ammonia, then later phosgene. Finally, they received an updated report that it was MIC, rather than methyl isocyanate, which hospital staff had never heard of and had no antidote for, and knew no immediate information about. It's appalling to think that vital alert systems were shut down to prevent panic, and most likely would have allowed time to evacuate, rather than many of the people in the surrounding city being told to shelter in place and experiencing the effects of toxic chemicals seeping into their homes. The site would have been particularly ominous as a toxic fog settled over the city, the streets disappearing as the fog began to cause acute symptoms. These included coughing, eye irritation, a suffocating feeling, breathlessness, among other symptoms. For children or those of a shorter stature, these individuals inhaled greater amounts due to the density of the chemical being twice as dense as air. Thousands of people had died by the following morning. Primary causes of deaths were choking, reflexogenic circulatory collapse, and pulmonary edema. Findings during autopsies revealed changes not only in the lungs, but also cerebral edema, tubular necrosis of the kidneys, fatty degeneration of the liver, and necrotagian enteritis. The individuals who did not die suffered from cancer, blindness, loss of livelihood, and financial strain. By the time the sun rose on Bhopal the morning of the disaster, over 3,000 people would be dead from exposure to not only methyl isocyanate, but several other toxic chemicals. Apart from MIC, based on laboratory simulation conditions, the gas cloud most likely also contained chloroform, dichloromethane, 
hydrogen chloride, methylamine, dimethylamine, trimethylamine, and carbon dioxide. Now, you think that following the explosion and release of toxic materials, that the response would be massive, right? Well, if you want to call it that. In the immediate aftermath, hospitals in the surrounding vicinity became overwhelmed with the vast majority of doctors and medical personnel unable to accurately treat the methyl isocyanate poisoning. As I stated, over 3,000 deaths occurred in the hours after the release of the toxic cloud, and without proper facilities to store the deceased, mass burials and cremations commenced. The surrounding environment was also not spared as trees became barren, livestock died, and waterways became unsuitable as a freshwater source and fish were deemed inedible. The Indian government closed the facility to outside entities and retained all data which led to confusion. Union Carbide's CEO organized a team of technical experts and medical professionals along with supplies to aid the government in its response. However, this aid did not demonstrate the acceptance of blame, quite the contrary. Union Carbide Corporation immediately began placing blame on Union Carbide India Limited, citing that due to their independent construction and operation, UCC had no liability in the matter. However, decades of environmental damage and negligence tells a much different story. UCC had participated in decades of previous instances of environmental negligence in every part of the world, directing its responsibility to its shareholders and numerous dealings with local and international political and economic powers. The company's response to the Bhopal accident was what Rajan describes as a campaign of erasure, meaning the transfer of liability and responsibility of the cause of the gas leak the event itself, and the aftermath. Rajan argues that this type of response is to be expected, according to the established cultural practice within large corporations such as UCC. Since Union Carbide Corporation absolved itself from the situation, the Indian government was the next institution that was looked to by the people of Bhopal, but they had also not prepared for such an event. The government's attempts at short and long-term plans failed in successfully aiding victims and instead created an ecology of opportunity built largely at the expense of the victims. It's truly devastating that the people of Bhopal were subjected to this series of events. Even to this very day, those exposed continue to suffer from long-term medical conditions such as cancers, and those who had children, a majority of them were born with severe deficits and disabilities that will require lifetime care that the Indian government has yet to provide support for. Overall, Death estimates vary greatly, with a general consensus landing somewhere between 3,000 and 30,000. Now, when I began this episode, I said the population of Bhopal was around 800,000. Injuries were sustained by over half of that population, or 558,125. In the months and years following, several lawsuits emerged either targeting Warren Anderson, the Union Carbide Corporation, the United States government, and the government of India. In 1985, the government of India passed the Bhopal Gas Act, allowing the government to perform legal duties for those affected. This act kickstarted the years-long process of legal proceedings that I'm not sure provided any direct consolation to the affected. On April 17, 1985, Federal District Court Judge John F. Keenan, overseeing one lawsuit, suggested that fundamental human decency required UCC to provide between $5 and $10 million to immediately help the injured, and suggested that the money could be quickly distributed through the International Red Cross. UCC, on the notion that doing so did not constitute an admission of liability and the figure could be credited toward any future settlement or judgment, offered a $5 million relief fund two days later. The Indian government turned down the offer. In March 1986, UCC proposed a settlement figure 
endorsed by plaintiffs' U.S. attorneys of $350 million that would, according to the company, generate a fund for Bhopal victims of between $500 million to $600 million over 20 years. In May, litigation was transferred from the United States to Indian courts by a U.S. district court ruling. Following an appeal of this decision, the U.S. Court of Appeals affirmed the transfer in November 1986, judging that USIL was a separate entity owned, managed, and operated exclusively by Indian citizens in India. The government of India refused the offer from UCC and claimed $3.3 billion U.S. dollars. The Indian Supreme Court told both sides to come to an agreement and start with a clean slate in November 1988. Eventually, in an out-of-court settlement reached in February 1989, UCC agreed to pay $470 million for damages caused by the Bhopal disaster. The amount was immediately paid. Throughout 1990, the Indian Supreme Court heard appeals against this settlement. In October 1991, the Supreme Court upheld the original $470 million, dismissing any other outstanding petitions that challenged the original decision. The court ordered the Indian government to purchase out-of-settlement fund a group medical insurance policy to cover 100,000 persons who may later develop symptoms and cover any shortfall in the settlement fund. It also requested UCC and its subsidiary, USIL, voluntarily fund a hospital in Bhopal at an estimated $17 million to specifically treat victims of the Bhopal disaster. The company did agree to this also. The saddest part of this whole disaster is the lasting health effects that can't be cured the suffering at the hands of corporate greed and negligence at all levels. Several studies were conducted to measure the long-term effects of the disaster. Studies suggest that there is an increase in several illnesses to include chronic conjunctivitis, early cataracts, chronic bronchitis, pulmonary fibrosis, fine motor skill impairment, PTSD, and increased rates of both peri- and neonatal death rates were identified in the area where methyl isocyanate exposure was highest. A cohort of 80,021 exposed people was registered along with a control group, a cohort of 15,931 from areas not exposed to MIC. Nearly every year since 1986, they have answered the same questionnaire. It shows excess mortality and morbidity in the exposed group. Bias and confounding factors cannot be excluded from the study. Because of migration and other factors, 75% of the cohort is lost as the ones who move out are not followed. Several fields of research are missing, such as female reproductive health, various cancers, and rates of tuberculosis. In the years following, hospitals and outreach centers provided a bulk of the medical care to the victims of the gas release, offering free medical care until 2006 as mandated by the Indian government. Finally, as we round out the episode, there are two possible scenarios as to what led to the disaster at Bhopal, the first being corporate negligence. This point of view argues that management, and to some extent, local government underinvested in safety, which allowed for a dangerous working environment to develop. Factors cited include the filling of the MIC tanks beyond recommended levels, poor maintenance after the plant ceased MIC production at the end of 1984, allowing several safety systems to be inoperable due to poor maintenance, and switching off safety systems to save money, including the MIC tank refrigeration system, which could have mitigated the disaster severity and non-existent catastrophe management plans. The next is worker sabotage, which is the belief of Dow Chemical, who now owns Union Carbide. The Union Carbide commissioned Arthur D. Little report commissioned that it was likely that a single employee secretly and deliberately introduced a large amount of water into the MIC tank by removing a meter and connecting a water hose directly to the tank through the metering port. UCC claims the plant staff falsified numerous records to distance themselves from the accident and absolve themselves of blame. 
and that the Indian government impeded its investigation and declined to prosecute the employee responsible, presumably because it would weaken its allegations of negligence by Union Carbide. The evidence advanced by UCC alleged to support this hypothesis. 1. A key witness testified that when he entered the control room at 12.15 a.m. prior to the disaster, the atmosphere was tense and quiet. 2. Another key witness, the instrument supervisor, testified that when he arrived at the scene immediately following the accident, he noticed that the local pressure indicator on the critical tank 610 was missing and that he found a hose lying next to the empty manhead created by the missing pressure indicator and that the hose had water running out of it. This testimony was corroborated by other witnesses. 3. Graphological analysis revealed major attempts to alter log files and destroy log evidence. 4. Other log files show that the control team had attempted to purge one ton of material out of tank 610 immediately prior to the disaster. An attempt was then made to cover up this transfer via log alteration. Water is heavier than MIC and the transfer line is attached to the bottom of the tank. The Arthur D. Little report concludes from this that the transfer was an effort to transfer water out of the tank 610 that had been discovered there. 5. Second-hand and third-hand recounting of events yielded two accounts that corroborated UCC's conspiracy hypothesis. An operator from a different unit stated that after the release, two MIC operators had told him that water had entered the tank through a pressure gauge. One employee stated that he had been told by a close friend of one of the the MIC operators, that water had entered through a tube that had been connected to the tank. This had been allegedly discovered by the other MIC operators who then tried to open and close valves to prevent the release. The little report argues that this evidence demonstrates the following chronology took place. At 10.20 p.m., the tank was at normal pressure, indicating the absence of water. At 10.45 p.m., a shift change took place after which the MIC storage area would be completely deserted. During this period, a disgruntled operator entered the storage area and hooked up one of the readily available rubber hoses to tank 610 with the intention of contaminating and spoiling the tank's contents. Water began to flow, beginning the chemical reaction that caused the disaster. After midnight, control room operators noticed the pressure rising and realized that there was a problem with tank 610. They discovered the water connection and decided to transfer one ton of the contents out to try to remove the water. The MIC release then occurred. The cover-up activities discovered during the investigation then took place. After over 30 years, in November 2017, S.P. Chudhari, former MIC production manager, claimed in court that the disaster was not an accident, but the result of a sabotage that claimed thousands of lives. Chaudhry's counsel, Anirban Roy, argued that the theory of design defects was floated by the central government in its endeavor to protect the victims of the tragedy. Everyone else involved in investigating the case just towed the line of the central government. The government and the CBI suppressed the actual truth and saved the real perpetrators of the crime. Roy argued to the district court that M.L. Verma, a disgruntled plant operator at odds with senior management, was behind the sabotage. The council argued that there were discrepancies in statements given by persons operating the plant at the time, but the central agency decided against a proper investigation in order to characterize the event as a mishap and not sabotage. He alleged that Verma was unhappy with Shahari and Mukant. Whatever the true cause may be remains up for debate as neither Dow Chemical or the government of India have shifted away from their stances. What is known is that this disaster remains the worst environmental disaster in recorded history. I hope that this doesn't get surpassed. However, as we know, Humans rarely learn from negligence and most continue to chase the almighty dollar regardless of the risk that it poses to both the community and the environment. I want to thank you all for listening this week. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to leave a like and a follow. If you are able, please consider supporting the podcast on Patreon. 
Even the $5 level will help the podcast grow and allow us to evolve at a fast rate. As we approach the holiday season, please be sure to remain cognizant of those around you. If you notice someone may not have family in the area, consider offering them a seat at your table. This time of the year can be especially challenging, so let's all try to put some good into the world. Until next week, this has been Destination Disaster. 